Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Hosea chapter 8. Less talk, more action. If you meet somebody that said they've been to the moon, there's always somebody else that says, says that they've been to the moon twice. You've all met big talkers. You might be the big talker. We've all met people like this. There's always somebody in the crowd, in the room, that's got a more audacious story. It's bigger, it's more flamboyant, and it's just a little bit more impressive than the story you just told. It's a one-upper. Everybody's met a one-upper before. Loud mouth. And that person uh, can be entertaining for a while, but it's, it's, it's not very long before that person gets really annoying because a whole lot of talking can get annoying pretty quick. And uh, the subtle loudmouth can be a little bit deceptive because embellished stories can impress people for a while, but then at some point you recognize that that person's just kind of a liar. <laughs> like, that story didn't really go like that. There's been a, a few things that have been added to the story to make it sound a little bit better, a little bit bigger. It's just how, it's just how talkers talk. But in time, the talker ends up getting exposed. That just happens. A shock jock entertain, entertainer entertains people, but the shock jock is not respected by anybody. They recognize that the shock jock is there to get listens, but nobody turns to that person for advice, counsel, or wisdom. And today, we're going to find out that Israel did a whole lot of talking, but they're going to be exposed, and we're going to see how ugly hypocrisy really is. Hypocrisy is really an ugly thing. It always has been, and it's always been around. And if you recognize hypocrisy for what it is, you'll see it everywhere. Everybody is hypocritical, even the person that's so angry at hypocrites. There's always people that look to the church and they say, I don't like Christians because they're just hypocritical. As if the only hypocrisy in the world is in the church. Hypocrisy is everywhere. But it's ugly. It's always been ugly. It always will be ugly. And we're going to see that Israel dealt with this sin, and it could be that you are dealing with this sin as well. Hypocrisy. We don't want to be hypocrites. We want to learn from Israel not to be a hypocrite. And there's a big difference between a repentant person who knows what they're supposed to do and says that they know what they're supposed to do, and then wants to go out and obey and that, that's a, a kind of humble hypocrisy, the hypocrisy that says, yes, I know I'm, I'm wanting to walk in obedience to the Lord, and I'm gathering people around me to help me walk in obedience to the Lord, and I recognize that there's times that I am living hypocritical. That, that's humble hypocrisy where you're recognizing that you know what to do, but just because you know what to do doesn't mean you always do the right thing. I wish knowledge alone would bring proper obedience, but we all know this. Because we know what to do. And even knowing what to do, sometimes we don't do the things that we want to do. Paul deals with this. That, that's, that's a humble hypocrisy. But then there's this flamboyant hypocrisy that we want to get away from that just says, I know the Lord, but doesn't ever seek to obey Him. And that's what Israel dealt with. And that's what we're going to confront today. Hosea chapter 8. We're going to get a setup here for us. It's going to set the table for us, and it's going to really lay the foundation for the entire chapter much the same way that Hosea chapter 1, 2, and 3 laid the foundation and set the table for the rest of the book of Hosea. This is the word of the Lord. Look at verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, we know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. Hosea turns and speaks the words of the Lord and he says, make an announcement, set a trumpet to your lips. And the trumpet would be sounded, the alarm would go out, and people would turn their attention to wherever the herald would be making the announcement. And it's like God saying, make it loud. Let them know there's a vulture circling around Israel right now in this moment. That's what he says. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Hosea is sounding the alarm, and he's letting them know that the enemy is smelling blood. When you see vultures traveling around somewhere, you know that there's something dead or something about to die, and those vultures are just waiting to sweep down 
and to eat it. On the drive here today, we saw a deer that was dead a couple days ago. I saw it had been hit in the morning that it snowed, and then it was down on the side, and that roadkill got pushed to the side, and there was a pile of vultures on that deer, a dead carcass eating that dead, rotting deer. And I said to Ransom and Charlie, hey, you guys see that, that deer right there and all the vultures? And they were just eating it, just going like crazy, just eating this rotten meat. And when Hosea said this, he's saying that there's a vulture over the house of the Lord. In the same way that they were after that rotten deer meat, Israel has blood, it's bleeding out, and there's vultures circling around. This is bad news for Israel. This is how the prophets speak. This is how the Holy Spirit would have the prophets speak, and it's pretty vivid. The imagery is clear. I love, again, how we see in the prophets that God doesn't pull any punches, and He doesn't walk on eggshells. He's okay saying, you're bleeding out, Israel, and vultures are coming for you. The enemy is close. It's close at hand. And here's what Israel is responding with. And this is what we're going to unpack the rest of the chapter. This statement right here. This hypocrisy that we're going to see so clearly in verse 2. To me, that's Israel, they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. This is the Pharisees in the Gospels. This is the sons of Abraham, the physical sons of Abraham in the Gospels. When Jesus and John the Baptist turns to them and says, you don't have me as your father, but I'm able to make out of these stones my family that will call out after me, that will be my sons. And they thought, just because we're Abraham's seed, we are the sons of the Most High God. And here, we're finding out, they're saying that we know you, God. They're still paying lip service to God, but there's a problem. Right after paying lip service to God, we see what Israel is saying to God. We see what Israel is actually doing. What they're saying and what they're doing is in conflict. Look at verse 3. Israel has spurned the good. That's the fundamental, foundational issue of, of chapter 8 in the book of Hosea. And then, then verse 3b, the enemy shall pursue him. They were two-faced liars. They were saying one thing and doing another. Unless we think anybody else would be off the hook, we're going to end taking a little walk through the book of Romans today. We're going to go hold hands together and walk down the Romans road together. And we're going to see that this is a fundamental issue with mankind. This is not simply Israel, but it is specifically Israel in Hosea. That's who it's addressed to. Israel has spurned the good. So even though they said, my God, we Israel, we know you, they have rejected. Spurned means rejected. They've rejected the good. That's the good thing. We're rejecting that. And we're walking this way in the way that's wrong, the way that's bad. Good this way, bad this way. Israel's walking that way all the while saying, we know you, God. We love you. We are Israel. Therefore, the enemy shall pursue him. They're that vulture, one like a vulture that's circling around. And they're walking in this area of the bad. And if you walk in the area of the bad, it ends up going bad. If you sow to the bad, you're going to reap bad. That's what happens. And so Israel's over here rejecting or spurning the good all the while saying, we know the Lord. Hypocrisy saying one thing and doing another. And so the book of Hosea, like all the prophets, is calling the people of God, don't just pay lip service to God, obey. That's your responsibility. And the prophet speaks forcefully, and he calls out to them with a fist, hey, repent and come back to the Lord. And here we see that hypocrisy will, no, will do no good for anybody. It's not good for God's people to say one thing and do another. The challenge remains before us today. May we not be like ancient Israel, May we be people from the inside out that obey the Lord. That we are not just hearers only of the word, but we're doers of the word. There's something, something like that in James, right? May we not be hearers only, but doers of the word. Hearers and doers of the word. So let's see the issues that unfold as we unpack this chapter. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction. So this is the bad that they pursued. They've spurned the good, and they've turned to what's bad. And now let's look at what's bad. Well, what's bad is really clear. They made kings, but not through me. They made kings their way, not God's way. They set up kings through assassinations, not through prayer. They did not seek the prophet. They did not seek the priest. They did not humbly submit to what God would have them do, but they did things their way instead. They made kings, but not through me. And then we're told something pretty interesting. It says, they set up princes, but I knew it not. 
Now, this is not speaking of God's cognitive knowledge because he tells us they set up princes, but I knew it not. He's not saying, but I don't know what princes they set up. So what is God saying? God does not even know their evil ways. God does not even know their evil ways. It's not a statement about his knowledge of the princes, but a statement of the knowledge of their ways. God is altogether holy. And the way they're living, it's like God doesn't even know that way of existing. Because God is utterly holy. And what they are doing is pursuing the bad and rejecting the good. So they set up kings and they set up princes, but they did not do it in the way God would have them do it. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. We saw this last week as well. God's people should have done things the way God had prescribed them to do them. But, you know, people are always, you know, always thinking that they're smarter than God. This still happens today. You bump into things in God's word. I don't like that. Doesn't seem right to me. And there's billions of it doesn't seem right to me people in the world where they prefer their own knowledge or some sort of other knowledge that they found on the History Channel or whatever it may be on the television or whatever it may be in the media, whatever it may be, wherever in the textbook at school. And instead of, what does God have to say about this? It's, but this seems more right to me. The doing things my way crowd. And then we see something crazy. With their money, they made idols. It's like they should have learned from a man named Aaron. It's like they should have remembered something that Moses had to deal with. But they took their money and they did something evil with it. Look what they did. With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction. They made idols with their own destruction. They took their silver, they took their gold, and they made things out of their hands. The craftsmen made things with the money that they would contribute, and they made idols that would lead to destruction. This is what idolatry always does. The worship of idols always leads to destruction. Why does the worship of idols always lead to destruction? Because they're false gods. That's why. And you know, there's been a, there's been a real... Um, it is true that you can idolize things that we are called to love in this world. You can idolize your family. That's certainly true. You can idolize a number of hobbies. You can idolize... That, that, that's very true. I don't think in this room or in our country we have much of a problem with idolizing family. I don't think we have much of a problem with that. I think we have a, a, a deep problem with idolize, idolizing individualism, idolizing what I want to do at the expense of the good of others. We have, a, we have a idolatry problem with demanding everyone else sacrifice for me. The, that's idolatry. Idolizing ourselves, our wants, our wishes. Well, I don't have a false god in my house. Yeah, okay, everybody's heard this, right? Like, you know, the exact same thing that every preacher says talking about idolatry is, yeah, we don't have idols made for us that we've fashioned ourselves, but we do have stuff that we worship. We really do. I mean, haven't you guys heard that? Any sermon on idolatry has to talk about that. But here's the deal. If you worship anything other than God... Hobbies, the life we wish we had, daydreaming about the wife we wish we had, or the husband we wish we had, or the life we wish we had, or the money that we wished we had, the fill in the blank, whatever it is that we wished we had. And as we covet and think about it, what is that? What is that? That is a, that's an ideal, that's, that's idolatry. That's, that's rejecting what God has given you and saying, God, that's not enough. What you've given me and what you've blessed me with, that's not enough. What I really want is this dream world that I fantasize about, whatever it may be. A life that's a little bit easier than the life that I have, fill in the blank, whatever it is, idolatry. And uh, many people today, like I said in our country today, we worship doing things our own way. It's just, I, I just want to do what I want to do. That's That's... That's my life, doing things my way, the way I would want them to be done, and getting other people to agree with my way and the way I want it to be done. That's, that's idolatry, living your life for that end. 
And so Israel had this issue, but this issue's here today as well. With their silver and gold, they made idols, and it was for their own destruction. Worshiping false gods never goes good because you put your hope on something that's powerless. You put your dreams and your future emotions or future joy, and you hang it on your ideal life that you're hoping for and you're living toward, and you hang it on there, and then you end up getting there, and and you realize, my gosh, there's, there's now there's future things, and I'm, I'm, I'm arrived here, and now there's future things, and I continue to hang my joy and my hope and my future emotions, everything on the next thing. You realize, you know, that's not it. That's how idolatry works. It lies. It tells you, if you get this now, you're going to be happy. And then you get it, and you realize, man, that's just not it. That's how idolatry works. It doesn't come through for you at all. And this is what Israel had failed to learn. We love you, God, but we keep making idols out of our own hands. And then we see that God rejects their idolatry. He rejects it. Look at verse 5. I have spurned. So Israel has spurned or rejected God. They've spurned the good. And now in verse 5, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? So Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Israel had the audacity to make a calf out of precious metal. (laughs) It's like they hear the stories of old and they think, oh yeah, like that's a really good idea. We should repeat what, what, what we used to do and what we did in the desert, in the wilderness. We should repeat this. We should build an idol, a a golden calf, and a silver calf. We should build a calf out of precious metal, and we should worship that instead of worshiping God. It sounds like a great idea. And somehow or another, this catches on in Samaria, and they're like, yeah, let's do that. Let's all throw our money in here, and let's build and fashion a calf, and let's start worshiping this calf. And somehow or another, this, this pagan worship catches on, and they're just, I mean, emptying their money out. Yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's build a God, a God with our own hands, out of our own resources. And let's trust in this false God. Guys, this happens everywhere all across the world still. Worshiping false gods. And God is rejecting this calf. God is rejecting it. They did what Aaron did. They did what ancient Israel did, and God rejects the calf again. And then God holds them accountable. This is so key, and it's key throughout all of the Bible. It's really key to understanding the law of God. God holds them accountable. Listen to this offensive phrase. God holds them accountable for that which they cannot do. God holds them accountable for that which they cannot do. He asks the question, How long will you be incapable of innocence? Mankind should walk blamelessly before the Lord. That's how the law of God works. The law of God shows how life should be lived before a holy God. Adam should have walked blamelessly in the garden. So should have Eve. Ever since God's law, his good law was given, we should be obedient to that law. That's what mankind should do. God's ways are always better than our ways, and His law is always right, always. And one of the ways we can know how sinful mankind is, is just flip open to the Old Testament, read some of the law of God, and then every time you're offended by God's law, just like mark, put a check mark there and think, okay, that's where I'm wrong, not where God's wrong. And when I read that again and I'm offended, okay, that's where I'm wrong, not where God's wrong. And you go down and you read something else, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. That's where I'm wrong, not where God's wrong. We sin against a holy God and we should be innocent. We should be obedient. And the Bible tells us, God's saying they are incapable. How long will you be incapable of innocence? And yet they were still held accountable for their actions. You've all heard this before. You might have been speeding before, and the cop comes and pulls over. You didn't know the speed limit, conveniently didn't know the speed limit. And your parents may have said this. I remember my parents saying this. Ignorance of the law is no... Ignorance of the law is no excuse. The truth of God's law and the truth of the sinfulness of mankind is this. It's not only that ignorance of the law is no excuse, but also inability to keep the law is no excuse. 
inability within a human being to keep the law is no excuse for violating the law. In other words, even though we're sinners, we've rebelled against God, we can't say, God, the reason I'm rebelling against your law is that I'm just incapable, so they're just, just give me a pass. No, you are still responsible for your actions. In fact, that's what the law of God reveals to us. It reveals to us not our uh, potential or not human ability. You've heard people say this before, well, God wouldn't command something that we cannot do. Actually, that's the opposite of what the commands are about. That God commands something and commands in his law things that we cannot do for a very specific reason. So that we will cry out for mercy. He holds us accountable for that which we cannot do so that we will feel the utter weight and the helplessness that is to be a part of mankind apart from God. God, we need you. Help me. That's what the law of God does. It exposes our need. But thankfully, that we saw this last week as well, just like a glimmer of hope. Thankfully, when you hear, hear things like this, how long will you be incapable of innocence? It's not as if one day Israel found out and figured out how to walk in innocence. It's not as if people in this room one day woke up and found out how to walk in innocence. The truth is, an innocent one came. There was a representative innocence in Jesus Christ who was both the lion and the lamb who walked in perfect obedience to his heavenly father. He was the one that answered this question. And this is all a setup. It's a table. It's a pointer to point to the one who would come and be the innocent one on behalf of lawbreakers who deserve God's wrath. Right here in this passage, we see it all throughout. When you see these themes about redemption and sin and, 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 and law and righteousness, you can see Jesus everywhere. I have spurned their calf. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Thank you, Jesus, the innocent one, for coming and answering that question. But look at verse 6. I want you to see how idols always end up crumbling. It's just a matter of time. And this calf crumbled. <laughs> the, gold, the first golden calf is nowhere. It's not like it's in a uh, museum somewhere. And neither is this golden calf. Look at verse 6. For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. Speaking of the calf. It's not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Israel's idol will be broken to pieces. <clears throat> there is no God like our God. There is no God like Jehovah. I don't want to break it. I've already broke into a Toby Keith song, but... If you remember 90s worship, and when I say there's no God like Jehovah, you just start thinking, you know, it's another one that gets in your head. There really is no God like Jehovah. This, cape, this calf was made by a craftsman. In Hinduism today, a false satanic religion, they continue to craft idols explicitly for worship to this day. Paganism does this. That's why all religions outside of Christianity are at their core satanic worship. It's not the worship of the Most High God. In this city, we have what's called an interfaith, interfaith, not interdenominational council, interfaith council. And for some reason, there are some Christians in the interfaith council that think we can come together and pray, and our prayers ascend into heaven as if it's a good fragrance. Hindus, Muslims, and Christians all together in this alliance. And it offends a holy God. There is no such thing. It is Christ over all false religions. And every false religion is diametri diametrically opposed to true religion, to Christianity, all paganism explicitly does this, worships creation over the creator. Creation's really beautiful. Um, you see people and they go out in nature, they do like Bear grill stuff, they climb volcanoes and, I mean, mountains, and they see beautiful valleys and rivers and beautiful places on the earth. And you'll hear people come back from amazing experiences like that or hear people talk about amazing experiences like that and they'll talk about how they feel closer to God than they've ever felt before. 
And in some sense, I kind of know what they're talking about. You know, you go out to a beautiful place, you go hunting, you go, Drew here lived in Utah, and I tell you what, I, I went and flew into Salt Lake and then drove up from Salt Lake all the way up through Idaho into northern Idaho. It's the most beautiful country I've ever seen. It was beautiful. I mean, snow, valleys, rivers in these valleys, and you just drive through it and you're like, my goodness, creation is absolutely stunning. It's beautiful. And if you've been to beautiful places, you know what I'm talking about. And because creation is so beautiful, people turn their hearts to it and they worship it. Worship what's created. And this is what paganism is. They see the beauty of what God has made and instead of seeing God as creator, they see creation as an end of itself. This is the error of evolution. Again, evolution is not some secular, irreligious concept. Evolution is utterly religious. And it's absolutely absurd, by the way. It's absolutely absurd. Just step back and consider the logic of evolution. You see, like, wait a minute, everything in order and matter is eternal, and then things get more and more and more complex from disorder? Like, order comes from unintelligent matter? That's insanity. It's absurd. And so when you look at creation and what paganism does, and they say, this is beautiful, this is God. And it may not be like in Hinduism, it may not be in like some of the religions in the world where you craft these idols and you worship that idol, but that's what all false religions do. They worship created things, created teachings, rather than worshiping the God of the universe. And this is Israel's sin. This is their problem. And God is saying to them that this calf is going to crumble. It's going to be broken into pieces. And in the end, in the end, all the enemies of God will be destroyed. As this calf will be crumbling in their midst, it will be turned to dust and ashes. Every false religion in the world will be proven to be false. And Jesus will reign over the entire earth. The cosmos is the Lord's. There is no God like our God. There is no Jehovah other than Jehovah. Mankind has this fascination with created things over the Creator, and they will, in the end, crumble. They will not last. But because Israel would do this, they would actually make the Bible has no, the Bible calls the sons of Eli, if you remember this. Eli had four sons, 1 Samuel, and his, first, his four sons were worthless. Remember, as you're reading through the Bible reading plan, and you, you're like, if you're, if you're in the Bible, Eli's sons show up, and their only part is to be called worthless. <laughs> like, man, Eli really dropped the ball somehow. I mean, he did pretty good with Samuel, but somehow or another, his boys were called worthless boys. And we get to, to see this here. Uh, when you worship false gods, you, you render yourself useless. To deny the God of the universe, to deny Him glory to his name, you end up shriveling up like this raisin. Your soul just gets shriveled and the longer you walk in rebellion from him, you just become more and more useless. And this is Israel. Verse 7, they sow the wind. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, starting in verse 7. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they're among the nations as a useless vessel. A useless vessel. You know, if you uh, get a coffee cup that's got a hole in the bottom of the coffee cup and you go to try to get coffee, it's pretty useless, isn't it? It's not functioning as it to, intended to function. You have to have an actual cup to drink the coffee. Or are you just going to pour it? It's just absolutely useless. So a coffee cup with nothing in it is a useless vessel. And when Israel is saying one thing and doing another, when they're walking in rebellion, when they're worshiping false gods, the Bible's saying they're, they're a useless vessel. There's, there's nothing good that's coming from this. They're shriveled up. They're no good. When you sow the rent, wind, you're going to reap the wind. In verse 7, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the, war, the, the whirlwind. Here, wind is equated to bad. Okay, In verse 3, Israel spurned the good. So they're walking in the bad, so it's spurning the good. Now they're sowing in the wind. Wind is bad. Okay, Good is good, wind is bad. That's what he's saying. When you're sowing the wind, what you're going to reap is what? 
Well, you're going to reap a whirlwind. Sowing and reaping. A creation principle. They're going to get back a whirlwind. When you play with fire, you get, you get burned. If you saw Jordan's story this week, he saw, I got a pretty good burn going on with this wood stove right now. Josh, I got to put my arm in there and burned it on the door. I wasn't playing with it, but it still got burned. You mess with the wind, what you get back is a whirlwind. And in this whirlwind, it's pretty interesting what this whirlwind looks like. Looks like. It looks like grain not producing. The grain will not produce. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. So a whirlwind is... You sow to the bad, it's going to have consequences. There's going to be a return. And the return is not going to be a profit with interest. The return is going to be in the other way. And you're not even going to have return on your wheat, your grain. But even if it, there was a return, listen to this, strangers would devour it. If it were to yield... Strangers would devour it. Even if it did, even if there was return on the flour, even if there was return, excuse me, on the grain, the standing grade, strangers would devour it. Think about the confusion. If you just stop and pause and think about passages like this. I love getting to do this every week because you you read the chapter the first time and you're like, what in the world? How am I going to preach this passage? (laughs) Like, how am I going to preach it? Especially preaching through an Old Testament prophetical book, a book of prophecy, it's more challenging than like First Peter's coming down the line next. So here in about five weeks, we're going to be making a switch. We're going to be maybe three or four weeks actually. We're going to be going into the book of First Peter. First Peter's next, and preaching First Peter in some ways is, is easier to preach an Old Testament book like Hosea. And you read through this, and as I'm reading through this, you know, from chapter to chapter, week to week, and you know, you try to get a, a picture of a whole, and you're reading commentaries. But when you're reading through it at first, you're like, I, God, I got nothing. Like I'm reading through this, and then as you you know pray and as you study throughout the week, you start seeing things you didn't see at first. And here we go. Even if there was return or yield on the grain, strangers would devour it. They could not even gain from products they made. Even if there was return, they could not even gain from the products they gain, made or the grain that they grew. Strangers in this passage are other nations. Other nations taking the resources grown in Israel. That's the whirlwind. It's a part of the whirlwind. That even if they did have crops that produced and they knew what to do with it, the the strangers, the other nations, would reap the reward of their work. When a nation can't use its resources for the good of their people, other nations end up benefiting from their production. That is called a whirlwind. You see how relevant the scriptures are, even from just a little verse like this, even to our world today, you see all this connecting and dots connecting and lines coming from here to here and seeing how this relates to our world today and our experience today. One of the problems we have as a nation today is is if we've been living in a whirlwind for almost a century, production going overseas, we don't even know how to make it beneficial to our people and we have our attention other places throughout the world more than here. How crazy would it be if I was elected as the mayor of Carbondale and I spent all my time thinking about Marion? People in Carbondale would be like, man, can you stop obsessing about Marion? For goodness sake, you're here to serve the people of Carbondale. And without getting into this you know, conversation slogans and political slogans or anything like that, it's crazy, it's crazy. You can't even buy, like, if you look at the tags on your clothes, almost everything is made in another place. It's, almost, it's impossible to buy things made in America. And this is the kind of whirlwind stuff. We think, well, what's the big deal? That's the air we breathe. Everything we make in China and blah, 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 whatever it is. And they're all reaping the benefits by the billions and trillions of dollars from us. Whirlwind. Even if there was production, the strangers enjoy it. The strangers swallow it up. They're swallowed by the nations, and these strangers devour it. Verse 8, Israel swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. So as the whirlwind is here, and nations continue to live in a whirlwind who don't know how to make their production work for them and for their good, they end up getting swallowed up, and they become useless. 
helpless to pagan kings, but useless as a nation before God and as God's people Israel. It's like they're a laughing stock to the nations. Well, what is a useless vessel? Because I think about a useless ve- vessel and I think a coffee cup that has no bottom, a coffee cup that can hold no, no coffee. It's a, it's a useless vessel. But, but what does the passage, how does the passage describe the use, useless vessel Israel? How does it describe it? And there's four things I want you to see. I want you to look at verses 9 through 11. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the kings and the princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become an altar. They have become to him altars for sinning. Wow. Four big things. What is a useless vessel? Well, first, a useless vessel is like a wild donkey. It's like a wild donkey wandering, a wild donkey wandering, okay? Wandering alone, and it's gone up to Assyria. A wild donkey, Assyria, is the enemy of God's people, one of the enemies of God's people. And what Israel has become is like this wandering donkey. Israel had a home, had a place to be, had a caretaker, God himself. They had the God of the universe. They had covenants of promise. They had the blessings of God. They had the land given to them. They had God's faithfulness down through the centuries that they could be telling stories about. But instead of recalling the mighty acts of God, the mighty deeds of God, they were repeating the sins of Moses, excuse me, repeating the sins of Aaron. And they're like a wild donkey going up to Assyria, not recognizing what they're leaving behind, that they have a home as they go wandering looking for a home. A useless vessel is somebody that doesn't even know where home is. A useless vessel is one that's like a donkey walking up to their enemies. Israel doesn't even know how to function, and they walk to the enemies of God. Number two, she rejects God's love. She rejects God's love. If you see this, Israel, Ephraim, which is within Israel, doing the same sins of the other tribes of Israel, Ephraim has hired lovers, hired lovers. Ephraim had God's love, but they thought they lacked it. How, how many people of, of God's people still today walk in the ways of Ephraim here and are always searching for God's love, even though God has told them, this is how, I show, this is how God shows his love for sinners, that, uh, love for you, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. This is how God shows his love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have God's love. He loved Israel. He chose Israel out of all the nations of the world, and he chose them because he chose them. He chose them because they loved them. He loved them, not because of anything that they had done. This is an unconditional decision of God to love them, and they had it. And instead of embracing and loving God's love or loving the fact that God loved them, they turned their attention to other lovers. And she went out and hired love. Ephraim went and hired love. Maybe, just maybe, I will be loved by somebody. I'm going to hire somebody to love me. And newsflash, hiring women in the red light district is not a way to find love. It's not a way to find love. For Israel, God's love was not enough. They wanted love on their terms. That's what a useless vessel looks like. That's what Israel had become, just useless. Verse 10 We see that their efforts failed. They had failed efforts. A useless vessel looks like failed efforts. Though they they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. I will soon gather them up. And their kings and their princes will soon writhe because of the tribute. They have failed efforts. Just like in chapter 7, their efforts to gain allies among the other nations will not work. It's that net that goes over them. It won't work. God won't let it succeed. They're running from God turning to other lovers, and they become for others what they did for themselves. Uh, They ran from God, turned to other lovers. They saw it's a dead-end street. They couldn't find their allies. And then in verse 11, we see this. Because Ephraim had multiplied altars for sinning, they had become to him altars for sinning. When you walk in false worship, 
it encourages more false worship. It invites it in. And when you sacrifice in the way that pagans would have you sacrifice, when Israel did this, it led to more sin and it led to the sins of other people. Sins are always consequential. There's no such thing as personal sins. All of our sins are consequential in the lives of other people. All sins have consequences. But sins unrepented of, sins unrepented of, are this other category. All sins have consequences, but sins unrepented of will come back to you. They have a shaping effect. And here we see that the sins of idolatry had a shaping effect on Israel. And they became altars for sinning. This became the way Israel existed. Their idolatry led to the culture where they were being idolized. They were walking in adultery. Everybody around Israel was walking in idolatry. Sins have a shaping effect on a person or a nation. That's why walking in sin, even as Christians, we can walk in sin and we can get, get trapped by it and not really even realize we're in it. We are the frog in the kettle. And then the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us, convicts us of that sin and it's like we wake up and realize, my goodness, the water had been boiling and I didn't even see it. God, thank you for sending the Nathan that said, you're the man. Idolatry. Because of all this, Israel is absolutely and utterly and totally hopeless. Innocence, gone. Sin, gone. Rejected the love of God. Spurned what is good. Israel, again, we see. Last week, I opened with talking about the repetitive nature of the book of Hosea. And we see it's just, it just keeps going, right? It just keeps going. They're hopeless. They're done. Israel's gone. In verse 12 through 14, listen to this. Were I to write to him, write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built places. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send fire upon his cities, and I shall devour her strongholds. Israel is utterly hopeless. Israel became strangers to God's law what it says, were I to write for them my laws by the ten thousands, let's add from the 600 and almost 700 laws that are written down in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if I were to add and tell them all of my laws even beyond that, it would be regarded as a strange thing. Remember uh, the baker who doesn't know how to bake, God's people who don't know how to be God's people. And if God was to lay out for them, Here, here's all of my holiness, here's all of my righteous ways, to them, they would look at that and say, that's strange. God's laws are strange. And when God's people look at God's law as if it were a strange thing, they are in deep, deep trouble. And friends, as a warning to our hearts, to people who love God's grace, if you don't know it, this is a group of people who love the grace of God and will always love the grace of God. And when God's grace grabs hold of you, it changes you forever. Uh, we love the grace of God. But I am alarmed some places I've been in my life in the past and some things I've said and misunderstanding God's law and in fact, actually even misunderstanding God's grace. Years ago, most of the people, if you're 50 above in here, you remember uh, strict legalism in your churches that you grew up in, or at least the friends' churches that they grew up in. You remember strict legalism. You don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with the girls that, girls that do. That's just good counsel, by the way. But... You don't dance, you don't play cards, the list of, legal, you know, like the, the, the holiness codes, depending upon what church you're a part of, you, you remember all that. You know, you have fundamentalism, you remember those kinds of laws. And then people like me, I didn't grow up in that. I grew up in a non-denominational church. We didn't have hymnals. I never, never knew any hymns or even gospel songs. We were singing, there's no God like Jehovah over and over again, you know, or yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. And uh, there was a swing and it's like the law of God for the last 50 years or so, and fundamentalism, it's like the law of God got placed only under the banner. I'm not saying everywhere, at every church and every individual, 
But as a whole, broad sweeping here, God's law and legalism just were equated as a one and one. So like uh, God's law is bad. Law is bad, grace is good. And if you don't know, we repudiate the idea that anyone would be justified by the law. Nobody can be justified by the law. If anybody could, Christ died for no purpose. That's Paul's argument in the book of Galatians. We loathe that message. It's the message of every religion in the world, is you can be saved by your works. And only Christianity says, to hell with that. You cannot be saved by works. You can only be saved by God's grace through Christ alone. And what a great message it is that we can be assured of our salvation right now in this moment. We can know we're right with God. We can have peace with God. You right now with that guilty conscience, you can have assurance of your salvation and your right standing with God right now because the Bible knows, no, knows nothing of salvation by works of the law, but by faith in Christ alone. That's a good news. We love God's grace. But when we swing and we look at fundamentalism or law and we put it under legalism, we can make this pendulum swing and we can see a deformed view of God's grace. And we can pit grace and law against each other. And the gospel and salvation by grace or, or, or salvation by works of the law is diametrically opposed to each other. However, when we get to a place where commandments from God to us are viewed as a strange thing, we're in a, we're in a deeply problematic state. If we're in a place that we only see God's commands and God's law under this big heading, this big banner called legalism, we are walking in the sins of Israel. Commandments viewed as a strange thing. So many Christians look at God's law with contempt. No, we don't. No, not God's law, not his commandments. Give us grace. Yes. For what purpose? For what purpose? To make you lawless? To make you not love the commandments? For what purpose? Yes, salvation by grace, for what purpose? That you would be conformed to the image of Christ. I've said this a lot from John chapter 14 to you guys. You guys know this. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. And if we only see those commandments under the banner of legalism or this evil thing called law, we look at God's law as if it were a strange thing. Regard it as a strange thing. And I know a pastor in this area who've heard this, and you guys have probably heard this, who have said, once you become a Christian, once you're in Christ Jesus, all of God's law has passed away in Christ. That is not true. That is a lie. It's an absolute lie. When we're justified by Jesus and His faithful law keeping, when we know that laws can't justify us, but when we're born again with the Holy Spirit of God within us, we love His commandments. We want to obey Him. We don't regard the law of God as a strange thing. We don't look at it with contempt. We love it. We know we're not justified by it. So we love the commandments. Yes, God, please tell me what to do. And whatever you tell me to do, I'm not going to view it as a strange thing. As a man, I want to do all you call me to do as a man. Ladies, as women, you want to do all God has called you to do as women. And whatever God commissions you or whatever God prohibits you from, we look to God and we say, cool, yes, absolutely, I'll obey. We don't regard the law of God and the commandments of God as a strange thing. We love His commandments. We see in verse 13 that Israel's sacrifices are not even going to be accepted. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but, but the Lord does not accept them. Hosea is warning them. The word of the Lord's coming. God's not accepting these. He says, now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt. Their sacrifices won't be accepted. Their punishment is coming. They shall return to Egypt, meaning slavery in another land, which would happen. And in verse 14, they even forgot their maker. And even Judah was held in contempt. Look at verse 14. For Israel had forgotten his maker and built places. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. In verse 14, they forgot their maker. They remembered their idols, but they forgot their maker. They forgot their maker's love for them. They chased after other lovers. 
and even Judah, the more faithful southern kingdom was held in contempt. Now let's uh, all walk down. We're going to walk down a Romans road together. And I want you to hear the words of the Lord. Because as we looked at the story in Hosea chapter 1, 2, and 3 about Gomer and Hosea, about Gomer, the faithful husband to Hosea, or, uh, Hosea, the faithful husband to the unfaithful prostitute Gomer. We said way back then, several weeks back, that we've got to see that it's we who are Gomer. It's mankind who is Gomer, and it's Jesus who's the faithful one. And it's easy for us to look at Israel. Honestly, it's easy for us to look at Israel with contempt. It's easy for us to look at these ancient stories. It's easy for us to look at Adam and Eve and think, you foolish. Uh, I'm trying to think of words that are okay for kids to all say too. You, you foolish, silly man. You know? Uh, you foolish. Per- look, look at this story. Idols, really? You guys, how foolish. We would never do something like that. We would never walk in that kind of foolishness. We would never spurn God's laws or look at them with contempt. We would never reject the love of God and go wandering in the red light district. We would never question God's love. We we are not like that. We're the ones who have walked in innocence. Clearly, they're the boneheads. And it's easy for us to look at contempt. The people of God of old. Let's go down the Romans road. And I just want you to hear this. I'm going to read some large portions of Scripture here, and I just want you to hear what God has to say. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We're going to be in Romans 1, Romans 3, and then Romans 3 again, and then back to, Rome, or to Hosea chapter 8. And you guys can follow along if you would like. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, which is the people, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Pause. This is what we just talked about in the book of Hosea. Worshiping created things rather than the creator. It wasn't just Israel. This is, we're going to see in a minute, this is addressed to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, every single last person that's ever been born. Romans 1 is about them. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and served the creature over the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Turn on the TV. 
Open your eyes to your city and region and state. Era after era, generation after generation, mankind's nature is the same. Instead of honoring the good, instead of honoring the Lord, we have spurned the good and loved the evil, sowing wind and reaping the war wind, being get whirlwind, being given up to an abased mind. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, that's why the wages of sin is death. Listen to this. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Approving sin? It's a big deal to say you're affirming of sin. It is a wicked thing to affirm sin. It's a wicked thing to approve of what God hates. From the littlest of sins to the biggest of sins, we reject sin. We call people out of it. We tell people how they can be forgiven for it. We tell them about a God who loves them and can forgive the most vile of sins, but we never approve of it. And you see, God's people got into approving sin. What about Romans 3, verses 19 and 20? Listen to this. Now we know that the, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world be accountable to, held accountable for God to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We hear the law of God and count as a strange thing, like Israel. The law of God stops every single mouth. Well, God's not right, I'm right. God's mean, I'm nice. Or God shouldn't think the way he thinks about that particular issue or that particular issue. I know the better way. I know the more kind way. I'm more benevolent. I, I, if I was God, I would do things differently. Shut your mouth. That's what God's law does. No. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is read, preached, or spoken, and we listen we say, I have sinned against a holy God. And it's not just ancient Israel. It's not just Adam and Eve. It was me. I did that. I sinned against God. But there's good news. Verse 21, but the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Apart from Jesus, nobody can be right with God. Apart from Jesus, everyone will be condemned and suffer the wrath of God. But for those who by grace receive the gift that is in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God, we're told, is propitiated by Jesus. He stands there and absorbs it on your behalf. God's wrath placed upon His Son in the place of real sinners and those who turn by faith get to be the beneficiaries of the work of Jesus. And apart from His work and His work alone, we, like Israel, are hopeless. We are going to face the iniquity of our sin. We're going to face the judgment that's coming for our sin. Apart from that work, we experience what we read in Hosea chapter 8 in verse 13. Apart from that work... The Lord will not accept us. Apart from that work, He will remember our iniquity. Apart from that work, He will punish our sins. And that's what's coming to everyone who does not, by God's grace, trust in Jesus. You have to hear this, and you have to hear this personally. And then for those who are in Christ Jesus, we don't make the mistakes of ancient Israel. We read the revealed law of God, the Word of God. 
We hear the commandments and you say, well, yeah, certainly there's some things to interpret in the Old Testament and which laws like the ceremonial or sacrificial laws that have passed away and that would be offensive to a holy God if we were to obey those because of what Christ, the sacrificial lamb, has done for us. There are laws that have passed away. And certainly there's room to discuss, okay, in God's civil laws or God's moral law, because the Ten Commandments are still for us. They're good. The commandments are good. If we just say, okay, I don't know how all the ins and outs work from that, but if we just look even just at the New Testament commandments, and by the way, the Old Testament commandments, is, they're authoritative for us, but even if we just look at what's in the New, there are so many commandments in the New Testament. And may we never look at them and do what they did and say, I don't like that, and so win for ourselves. We're the people of God. You have the Holy Spirit of God within you. We love the law of God. We do not spurn that which is good. We do not look at the law of God as if it's a strange thing. And because of what Christ has done for us, our iniquity will not be remembered. Because of what Christ has done for us, we will not be punished for our sins. And because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, we have been taken away from slavery and we're not living in it. The bonds of sin that were there the shackles that were on our hands and feet, the death that we were living in, the sin and the rebellion that we were walking in, those shackles and chains have been broken. The power of sin in our life, we're not living in Egypt anymore. We have been set free and we're following Jesus, our King. Let's pray.